Welcome, Vic, we said, and it's our 100th episode, and as for most of the episodes of the previous 100, I'm joined by the one, the only, Dr. Luke Middle. How are you today, Luke? I'm very well, I'm very well, thanks, well, did you ever think we'd make it this far, baby? Uh, yeah, kind of, because we talk all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yep, we've just been recording the nonsense we've been talking about for years. And of course... We should start where it all began. That, that the decision of Theresa May to call the election um, back in 2017. Oh, it was a better time, a simpler time. <laughs> a time when Jeremy Corbyn was horribly unpopular, people were arguing about Brexit and worried about what Donald Trump might destroy the world. It's amazing how things have changed. I know, it's a totally different world, isn't it? This is thing. Lots of things have happened. Nothing's changed. Yes. Yeah. It's just been massive churn and lots of stuff going on, but nothing actually happening. I mean, obviously the big story in Britain uh, this week has been the. Uh, sorry, listeners. I'm spitting at Luke because there is there is brandy captured on my. Uh, yeah. On my uh, on my moustache. By the way, because we're actually we, we actually decided to mark this occasion by doing a live in-person podcast. So we're in the Roebuck in Nottingham. Normally we only meet up here at Christmas, but we decided to meet up here for a hundred podcasts. Now look, before that seems like a really egotistical, it's actually just a coincidence. <laughs> Why are, you, why are you stepping on my magic? <laughs> I'm trying to paint a picture with words. <laughs> and of course we were meant to meet up tomorrow, but then I managed to sign myself up to go and watch some uh, Bellator MMA um, down, in, uh, uh, down in London. So, so we're here to our 100th episode. The big news this week has been the, uh, the final stages of the MP stage. Final rounds of the MP stage of the Tory Party leadership election, which left us with two candidates. Now, before we get into who they are, let's talk about the greatest crime ever committed against British democracy, which was the BBC Tory leadership oh, debate on Tuesday. I've been trying to black. I've been trying to. I've been trying to black that out of my mind, but that was that was the worst thing I've ever seen. Not just in politics, but you know, ever in life. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is as bad as it gets. The only thing I've I've seen up close and personal that looked more painful for the people taking part was childbirth. <laughs> poor, poor Rory Stewart looks like he's going to be having nightmares. And that guy was in Iraq. That guy was in Afghanistan, and he looked traumatized by being part of that debate. So, and the thing is, what? It was all the BBC's fault. I mean, people got ragged on the candidates and said they were crap. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, they, well, they are crap, but, like, they didn't have to look that bad. The BBC didn't make their mind about what type of debate they wanted to do. Because they, they basically they had two options. They could either have done your kind of moderator formal debates where you're being asked questions by the presenter, you have strict allocation of time, you answer the question, and then you move on to the next one. Maybe a bit of rebuttal in between. Yeah, very much like we've seen in the last, very much like we've seen in the 2010 ele- general yeah. election. Very controlled, you know, etc. The alternative is to do what America would call like a town hall debate with, say, something like question time. Yeah. Where 
bit more informal. You ask questions to the candidates from ordinary people, ordinary voters in the audience. The BBC did neither, did they, Luke? No, they didn't. Um, they sort of had uh, questions from members of the, or well, say members of the public, because in at least, at least in at least one, two cases, these people had political affiliations or a political past. That I don't think this bars them from asking questions, but it does, it's incumbent on the presenter to give the audience context as to who these people are. The Luke's referring to, there was a former Labour Party staffer and council candidate yeah. that did not mention that whilst they did play like yeah. a negative and by, and by the way, a lot of people are saying that he shouldn't have been allowed to ask a question. I have no problem with the question he asked or the fact that he was allowed to ask it. I do have a problem with the fact that BBC didn't give the audience well, the let, background. Let's put it in, Zach, because I do have a problem with the time in a second. You also had an imam who'd said, who'd basically on his Twitter, which he cleverly deactivated before, uh, whilst they were doing the vetted, had said some kind of strident things about Israel, including we share an Amin had actually gotten a Labour MP now show into trouble. Yeah. Do about the way you solve the Israel, the Israel-Palestine conflict is to move Israel to the, to America. And also uh, said some pretty extreme things about the segregation of the sex, the sexes as well. So, so they had then ask questions by video link, which, which was like a gimmick. But okay, like I could see the argument that we don't have time. To get a, a town a town a, like a town hall audience ready, you no. Know, in terms of vetting stuff like that, well, this is a way of having this way of having the participation without that hassle. The problem was they didn't clue Emily Maitler in because Emily rather than Emily Maitler saying, okay, here's here's your question from the audience. Each of you answer it. Then we go on to the next one. She would like like one person would get to answer the question the audience member had ans- answered. They'd squabble a bit, and then Emily Maitlis would chip in with her own questions. At one point, she literally told Johnson off because Boris Johnson was trying to answer the question the audience member had answered, yeah, where that, she that. where she wanted to, him to answer the question she'd asked. Yeah, and I mean, you said they couldn't put a town hall audience together. They do do this on a weekly basis with question time. So why not make that entire debate at question time special? Well, they wanted it on Tuesday, because that's, that was going to be where you had a few enough candidates Johns would agree to go, because he refused to do the Channel 4 one. Um, but still enough for, like, around... OK, why not bring question time forward to a Tuesday? I'd go... I would say, why bother full stop? Why not just have Emily Maitlis asking questions to the panelists in that structured format that is used in American debates. It's like, yes, we know it's limited and it makes it a bit boring, but there is a reason why they use that format, particularly when it's multi-candidate. So it doesn't descend into people talking over each other constantly. So it doesn't descend into who can speak loudest, who can speak loudest and most often. But everything about how it was set up, like they're on those weird chairs, yeah, Maitless. Maitless was away from them, so she was struggling to impose order. Like if you'd abused the question time set, she would have it'd been easier for her to, to control it. If you'd put some sort of timer on when they were talk, using up their time, 
you'd have made it fairer. They did because who's willing to talk the most? And who's who, willing to talk loudest? Who's willing to talk loudest? It allowed Johnson to completely escape any scrutiny because he wasn't particularly interested in talking and to any great extent. No. Um, and yeah, it was. And I, I mean, I think we both turned it off. About halfway through. Uh, no, but closer to two first. Okay. Because, like, you would get. It was like the parody you get sometimes, like CNN. Uh, uh, TV debates yeah. where everybody is squabbling over each other and it's just a wall of noise. Yeah, and I mean, the, the other thing I want to say is I understand why you want the debate on the day on the day of the ballot, but it, what that does mean is you're asking four, you're asking five people to do a very difficult thing with very little preparation because, you know, they've literally gone from spending the last six, seven hours trying to wrangle votes and negotiate with individual MPs to having maybe two hours of preparation and yes the candidates will know what they think about a particular issue but you know in order to speak fluently and well in public it does require a certain level of practice but it's also like the chemistry of the debate depends on the participants yeah. so it would have been a very different debate if Dominic Robb had managed to get in rather than Roy Stewart or Savage Avis. Um, you know. So, yeah, it was a disaster. It had immediate consequences of BBC because ITV snaffled the, the, the first head-to-head debate uh, between Hunt and Johnson, yeah. the two guys that came through these rounds. Um, there needs to be a serious look at themselves from the BBC, which I don't think is going to happen. You look at the people on Twitter, they'll be very defensive. Yeah. You know, praising, the, praising Emily Maitlis, which even with the bad format, I thought had a shocker. Even if you put that into account. Yeah. Um, because she was really inconsistent about when she decided to interrupt yeah. and when not. There seemed to be, there seemed to be no, no rules no sort of no, con- no consistency no fairness and the thing is why is she presenting it like you have Fiona Bruce as a new question time presenter the one that is, you know is, is doing these sorts of multi-politician yeah. panel debates all the time why wasn't she used and uh, why not get um, why not get Laura Coombs who is the BBC's economic I was going to get Laura Coombs the economics editor yeah, like, and the like, Europe editor yeah like and that's it the, the argument I have against the questions that were being asked yeah. was that they were like they weren't questions that were addressing the yeah they were they were worse than question time questions they were just kind of like they were if, they, if you were doing them in, a, in like a HE conference they'd be proceeded with this is more of a comment than a question um you know they were they were all they were all designed to be hardball questions but the reality is, is a bad question to those guys would have been Parliament, Parliament is against no deal. Parliament has voted to, against no deal in the past. How can you ensure we leave in the, on the 31st of October? How do you ensure that a no deal Brexit? I think that was one of the questions that was asked. But it was, it, but it was done with such a lot of leading. Yeah. And sort of, I don't need to know the personal background yeah. and circumstances of the person asking the question. 
I'm not interested in whether Joyce from wherever is going, her husband is going to tell you she's trouble or not. Just ask the question you want to ask. So, not everything has to become a personal interest story. So, yeah, so I, 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 the, the other question is, look, it's the toilage relation. What, for, for better or worse, it is a decision that is ultimately made by Tory members. Why is somebody in the Labour Party being asking questions? It's not, look, it's not TV entertainment. The whole point of this is to help inform the decision of the people who will ultimately but would make the decision. decision. It should have been, like you've done for like a Labour Party uh, leadership election. It should have been primarily. It should have been primarily Tory members, maybe some Tory voters, or former Tory voters. I don't see an argument for somebody who is not just a Labour councillor, but was like a Labour staffer, being involved because they're not. They're never going to be the type of people that that, that the Tory leader is going to be trying to keep or win over. But again, that would have ta- that would have taken. To get a representative audience, that's why I was involved. I don't, think, I don't think it adds anything to it. What I think you do is you have an empty room, and you have Hugh Edwards, uh, Andrew Neil, Fiona Bruce asking the questions. No, I would have, I would have done it like they used to do in American presidential debates, where you had three reporters. You have Laura Koonsberg, the economics guy who I don't know who it is at the moment, and Katya Adler is Europe editor, asking Westminster economics and Europe questions. I mean, yeah, you, you could have done it where it was all the, the, you could have done the same gimmick of the Vox Pop video questions, but it's the various different BBC correspondents. Yeah, if you really wanted to do that gimmick. Because I think the gimmick was fine. Yeah. If they'd asked good questions and if you had a chair who, who had a clear idea of what a job was and can control the crowd. And in fairness, it's not entirely Emily Maitlis' fault. If this was a debate with rules, Emily Maitlis was trying the best to like, enforce order without any agreed upon idea of what order comes No, no it's not entirely her fault, but it is her fault. Yeah. I mean, like, I think some people are going too far the other way and I'm solving her all blame. But she wasn't sticking to the question asked, yeah. which meant that you, you were encouraging people to jump in because they knew that if they waited to be caught, they were going to be asked like a question yeah, on the, the spot. The, the debate would have moved on. So, yeah, it was a disaster. BBC should be thoroughly ashamed of themselves. I've got to say, when the, when the, next, general, when the next general election comes, whenever that is. If I were if I were working in CCHQ uh, or the leaders' office of the Labour Party, I'd be very leery about letting the BBC organise. You, you couldn't debate. you couldn't do that in the general election. No. Because you'd break the uh, equal yeah. time rules. Um, so let's move on. So briefly, I'm not going to give you raw numbers because we don't have them in front of us because we're in the pub. But we had three rounds. Yeah. Four rounds. Four rounds this week. So, obviously, in the first round, loads of no hope candidates have been eliminated. Uh, Ledson, uh, McVay. Eva McVeigh, and uh, Matt Hancock also stepped down. And Mark Harper. Mark Harper. Freeing up um, 50 votes uh, to be reallocated amongst Tory MPs. 
on Tuesday you had the second round, you had to hit 33 MPs to, to continue. That actually turned out not to be that important because both Stuart and Javid hit the 33 threshold, whereas Dominic Robb didn't, and Dominic Robb was eliminated to last place candidates. You then have on Wednesday the next round, the third round, where which was interesting because Stuart had surprised everybody by surging to, I want to say, 37? Yeah, 37. He then slipped back to 27. Um, my personal gut is that was a combination of poor BBC debates. Yeah, really poor. Uh, and people thinking, Javid had more juice, let's support Javid, so at least somebody other than Hunt in that kind of the sensible tendency going forward. Also, I think there was a thing of almost like the, the point of Stuart's candidacy at that point was to be in that BBC debate. Yes. But there were people who really wanted him to be in that debate so he could put like the hard questions about the difficulty of Brexit. Now, maybe the Jews that did well, they kept, kept yeah. them in. But I do think there were people who were like, I don't really want Roy Stewart to be Prime Minister. I'm, I'm only lending him my vote because I really want him to ask the key questions in that BBC debate um, later in the day. I think Rory Stewart really did help himself. I think he's become a much more substantial figure as a result of that campaign than he was when he went into it. And I find it very hard to conceive that he won't have a place in the next cabinet, either remaining as different secretary, but I think he'd be a reasonable shout for the next foreign yeah, I think the question will be, does he want it? It certainly feels like he does. Yeah. Um, but he's made his position on no deal so clear. Uh, if I was Johnson, I'd be very... Like, if, what, because you're giving him a platform to resign? But then again, you're not... Well, we'll talk about this later, but I don't think you, you can't attempt no deal. There's simply not... Well, yeah, that's, yeah, that's about that later. Yeah, no, I agree. I do think I was saying this to you offline. Like, I think it's it shows you where like that kind of establishment Tory has kind of where their position in the party or in the politics has reduced to that they're kind of forced to endorse this gaslight candidacy. So you had people like David Bork, David David Littleton, clearly Soto Voice, people like uh, uh, Philip Hammond, Theresa May back in this candidate there wasn't just like a long shot candidacy it clearly was a like an odd eccentric candidacy too um partly because of who Rory Stewart is and partly because of the positions the positions he was espoused but it just shows you how the centre of gravity in the Tory party is rapidly shifting I do think it's important not to overstate how good how good Stewart was in this campaign I think he was good at kind of asking questions and exposing how nobody else had yeah. a plan. But his plan was basically they will they will have the withdrawal agreement and they will like it. Yeah. Which is no more plausible at this stage than anything anybody else is offering, particularly when you you're not giving yourself the stick of going no, to stick of no deal to beat Labour MPs yeah. around the headwind. I mean, I think, I think, 
I think he did kind of make the point without being explicit that the problem with the withdrawal agreement is not the agreement per se, it's that Theresa May never sold it. Um, yeah. We'll get back to that because we're going to talk at the end of the podcast about Theresa May's legacy. The problem is it's too late to sell it it's anything other than a crop. I don't think though, talking about too late, let's talk about Boris Johnson. The Boris Johnson is going to be pointless. Probably. Like, something really weird will have to happen for him to be Jeremy Hunt. I don't, I don't, for him to lose Jeremy Hunt. I don't completely rule that out because it's that, it's that line from The Crown about um, Princess Margaret. I have absolute faith in Boris Johnson's ability to cock himself. <laughs> um, it's a good line, isn't it? Yeah. And it's just, I. I really wonder whether this whole um, just keeping stum and hoping that your natural momentum will carry across the road. Trying to keep that going for a month and a half is not impossible. It's going to be difficult. It's only a month until the campaign is over. Mm. Like it's, very, it's been a very expedited campaign. Um, I think like it's only a week ago they did the first, they did the first ballot of MPs. Okay. So they really have pushed through. So your money is very strongly on Boris Johnson. Yeah, like uh, I, 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 I am putting all my money on, on, on a Johnson. Um, but boom. But yeah, but like in all seriousness, like the youth of polling shows that he's by far the preferred candidate. It shows that Hunt was no stronger than any other candidates. Actually, showed that Gove was the weakest candidate. Even more than Stuart, which I think contradicted some narratives that even like Tavares were saying yeah. about the Brexiteer point. You have the issue that his Hunt is not only a Remainer, but that he is a, a Remainer and immediately after the referendum took it badly and did flirt with second referendum, uh, soft Brexit, etc., etc., etc. So you know, if it gets nasty, if it gets tight, that still starts being weaponized. Yeah. Um, and I've just discovered that the roadblock actually. Oh no, no. It's just a different door to get to the toilet. Um, I was like, oh my god, is that downstairs toilet? So I never know. Um, Thanks for that interview. Yep, that's staying in, uh, listeners. Um, so yeah, I do not think. Uh, Johnson, the hunt can be Johnson. I, I, the controversy there was was whether Gove could be Johnson. So, so Jeremy Hunt obviously is the uh, is the foreign secretary. He um, had been a health secretary before they'd been a culture secretary. He's not had time to really distinguish himself as foreign secretary. Been in there less than a year. Health secretary and culture secretary, both in both roles, he was very lucky not to be fired. Um, more than once. Yeah, but he's the only he's the only um, member of the cabinet other than Theresa May who's been continuously in office since 2010. Yes, he is. He is nothing but a survivor. Yeah. Um, there's an argument that Gove would have been the more the more difficult challenger for Johnson, and I think. I'm not sure I see it. I think he'd be a more uncomfortable challenger for Johnson because Gove would have been a month of reminding people of Johnson's spectacular implosion yeah. in 2016. Yeah. And it's, it's it, it, you know, 
Hunt finishes two votes ahead of Gump. Yeah, so 77 to 75. Now, there's also, we're never going to know whether the Johnson team lent Hunt votes. I tend to doubt it with the result being that close. I don't think any whipping operation is good enough to land, to land it that precisely. No, but you might know you need to lend votes. I mean, Portillo was kept off the ballot by IDS supporters lending votes to him by one vote. I mean, actually, that was a funny one. Is that almost spectacularly backfired on Duncan Smith? Yeah. Because they almost lent so many votes to Clark that their own man to make it. <laughs> like, because the person Portillo was one behind was Duncan Smith. Clark, was actually, Clark actually won yeah. the MP's ballot in 2001. Um, so, so, so I, I think so, if only for the fact that on the numbers, Javid gained, uh, Johnson gained three Javid supporters, but uh, in public, five Javid supporters <laughs> said that they were now going to support Boris Johnson. By the way, winner of Twitter for the week, Paul Masterson, the Conservative MP for Aberdeen West and King Cardinship. Back the loser in every single round, yep. and then put why am I this tweet was why am I so bad at this? Oh, I thought the best tweet from a Tory MP. Um, uh, <laughs> no, I thought the best tweet from a Tory MP uh, this week was uh, David Gore. Uh, also, that's mine. Uh, uh, I thought the best tweet from a Tory MP uh, was David Gore today saying. I never get the hang of dress down Fridays. Oh, and his full Lord, his full, Chancellor's, full Lord Chancellor's uh uniform. Um but anyway. Do you think Gove would have been a trickier candidate for Johnson to defeat? I think Gove would have been a trickier candidate for two reasons. First, because like you say, it would it would it would take Conservative members back to the psycho drama of two thousand and sixteen. Second, I think Gove has been a more consistent race tier than, oh, yes. than Jeremy Hunt. And third, I just think I just think Michael Gove is more fluent uh, yeah. than Jeremy Hunt. I don't think Gove would be any more likely to defeat Johnson, but it would make it for a much more interesting month. And it would have made it for a much more interesting debate that really tests Johnson. How is Hunt going to play this we know, we know what Johnson's strategy is. He's going to roll over and let Johnson tickle his tummy. And this is just this, this is kayfabe, it's fake, it's, it's a possession. You think, I mean, this is Jeremy Hunt. I don't think Jeremy Hunt's going to throw any punches. This is Jeremy Hunt's one shot at the company. But it's not a shot. He, he can't do it. There's no one this time. I mean, I mean, yeah, he's, yeah he's, certainly, he's certainly the underdog, but he's still one horse and two horse runs. Yeah, I still, I still back the field over <laughs> over Hunt. To be honest. So we're back. Um, as we were talking about just then, I, I would back the field over Jeremy Hunt. Uh, Luke, you think he's going down swinging? I think yeah, I, 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 I don't see what he's got to lose. I mean, you, there's the possibility of him floated that he could be Boris Johnson's deputy prime minister, or that he could stay in the cabinet in some of the post. I, I don't see it. I, I just don't. I don't see what having Jeremy Hunt in the cabinet gets Boris Johnson. Well, he's probably 
It's a weird one with because uh, he is one of their bare media performers, but his health secretary has made him toxic. I'd be very surprised if he was removed, but you're right in the sense of I don't see him being chanced. Yeah. So he's kind of hit his level. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think he's even stays for the secretary, which would be odd. Which is not impossible, like he has signed up to the 31st, he signed up to threatening no deal. But I quite like, I, I could see the argument for giving him the Liddington role where you're the Deputy Prime Minister, you're the coordinating figure of the government. And that could be quite a powerful position under Boris Johnson because we know, you know, Boris is whatever his strengths, mastery of detail, it's not one of them. No. Um, but let's 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 break down the topic for a second. We know what we know what Boris Johnson's strategy to win this leadership contest is, which is to shore up his right flank and say as little as possible. If you're Jeremy Hunt's campaign manager, let's assuming you are going to fight this campaign, how do you do it? Are you hiring a private investigator? <laughs> yeah, that could certainly be one way. Yeah, like basically, you, the only way you're gonna have a hopes in ha- hope in hell is if some massive, awful scandal is uncovered by the Boris Johnson that put up ends the race. See, the thing is, there are a lot, of, there are a lot, of, there are a lot of fearful and savoury rumours about Boris Johnson's private life. There is an awful lot of smoke. Not a massive amount of fire. Oh, I think there's a lot of fire. It's just that the fire is baked in. Yeah, I mean, this is the problem. It really would have to be a massive um, scandal. Massive or... Usually, they say massive or recent. Like, he is... You know, he is in the process of divorcing his wife due to an alleged affair with the woman who is now his partner. Yeah, like, and we would not, you know, it would not have been, and it would not have been the first time Boris Johnson has, has gone through that particular process. And, you know, like, you have to remember, you know, why, why, did he, why did he run for London Mayor? He ran for London Mayor because he was exiled to the backbenchers by Michael Howard, continued by David Cameron. Why was he exiled? Because he was caught having an affair with one of the Spectator's writers, and the strong rumour was, was that he had procured her an abortion. And there's also the rumour that he has fathered at least one child out of Yes. So... Having said that, you know, in fairness to Boris Johnson, he has never, at any point in his political career, painted himself as a kind of... In what would in the US context be called a values conservative. No. So he's not, he may have a rickety private life, but he's not a hypocrite. But I think that is his weakness. Like you do, like, you, 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 one of, one of the interesting divides that is kind of happening, both in America and British conservatism, is that if you look at ordinary people, whether they're liberal or conservative is, is, is linked to how conscientious they are. The average conservative person tends to be more conscientious, yeah. more likely to be like a regular churchgoer, etc, etc, etc. Whereas being a liberal, in like using American phraseology, being a liberal is more linked to open-mindedness. Yeah. And one of the interesting things is, though, for, for reasons aren't entirely clear, 
conservative politicians tend to be quite unconscientious. Yes. And I think one of the interesting things that you always have to remember is that even before Johnson imploded, May was out polling him in polls of the membership in 2016. Because the members saw Theresa May as somebody like her. Clearly very devout uh, Anglican, clearly a very happy and faithful private life, etc, etc, etc. You know, it's an old-fashioned word, but, you know, Johnson is clearly a cat. He is! Um, And that sentiment being a cat, you know, you look at any kind of interviews with Tory party members, any kind of like deep dives where journalists goes and pokes the village freaks. I hear you're a Conservative Party (laughs) member. Um, That sense is there, and they are uncomfortable about it. Yeah, but it's how how does Jeremy Hunt exploit that without looking like he's exploited? Well, it's also a thing of, like, there's no point... Like, something has to happen to make it a close race. Like, if if I was advising Jeremy Hunt right now, you say you're in a good campaign, you try and get it so your vote is, like, 30 40%. So you, you leave with some credibility. But you kind of resign yourself to being in Boris Johnson's cabinet. Yeah. And then they would have to happen where you think, ah, if I start throwing some punches... I might be able to... I might be able to... I might be able to win, and that is then worth me making this quite nasty race. And the thing is, we know, we know from 2016 that Boris Johnson will fold under pressure mm. as well. He does have a he does have a glass chip. So if you can be in a position to deliver that punch when it matters, you might you might win this right. The, the problem is it's going to be very soon. Like, yeah. But postal ballots will be going out yeah. next week. They'll be they'll be with people in time for the ITV debate the following weekend. So two weeks, I think two weeks tomorrow is the first ITV de- is the ITV debate. So there has to be evidence that Hunt has a chance. Yeah. Then this is why I thought Javin or Rob were more credible opponents for Johnson. Yeah. Because it's the point you made that Hunt is the only person of the May to have always been in the cabinet. And like Johnson, in a weird way, almost as if he bracketed in with those two because he, he was London Mayor yeah. for, for, for almost that entire period. Like Johnson has either been London Mayor or Cabinet Minister from 2008 to 2018. That small period in between where he was a leading cabinet, leading campaigner for vote leave. Yeah, I mean, like he has been so far in the public eye. You know, you, you know, his first appearances on. On uh, Have I Got News for You, the BBC uh, satirical, satirical comedy, satirical very lightly, comedy very lightly nowadays. <laughs> um, you know, they were in like the late nineties. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so my point was is that Hunt, Hunt probably can hit Johnson on the kind of family stuff, but he can't hit Johnson on Johnson's tired. Johnson slapped out, I am fresh and new, yeah. because he is not fresh and new. Whereas Javid or Rob could have done that. The problem is they are both Falklands. 
warm full walking, gravid walking you learn to smile. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think actually this campaign has done such a job in a lot of good mm. because it has actually exposed that he does have a person, he does have something personality. It's weird. The, 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 the second half of the campaign has him a lot of good. But he wasn't, like, remember, he is Home Secretary. Yeah. It's not like he was Minister for Paperclips yeah. running to raise his profile. That's true. That's like, true. he should have been a yeah. serious candidate, yeah. not scraping to survive uh, yeah, Rory he's not, Mania. He's, he's not Rory, he's not Rory still. So, what, what happened with Savage Ave was he was as robotic and, bo- as, and boring as people assume. And then he wasn't. Yeah. So the fact that he was so robo- robotic sank his candidacy. Yeah. And then the fact that he showed life, not consistently, it's like, but you know, it's, it's, it's what uh, David Cameron talked about his Christianity, you know, it's like trying to get uh, Classic FM in the Chilterns, it comes and goes. <laughs> you know, you can, t- you can tell his spinner is like definitely like turning the knobs <laughs> to, try, to try and get his personality through. Um, the fact that he showed that personality has meant, means he leaves it with some, with, with, it, with reputation hands. But from an idea caused by the poor start of his campaign. And he's, he's, he's because uh, we'll talk about this in a minute. Um, I think I want to make one more point about Jeremy Hunt, and okay. then we can move on. The other thing I you really are all about the hunt today, aren't you? I am. You're all, all about, about the hunt. hunt. Yeah, just, just just make sure to accentuate the age. Um, I think the other thing Jeremy Hunt can do that would improve his chances is to try and make sure that the entire debate doesn't become about Brexit. Try and broaden things out. Because the, the, other, the other strike against Johnson I think would be quite effective is he's a really bad executive. That basically you have a lot of evidence that when he was London Mayor, essentially he delegated everything. So try and get Johnson, try and get Johnson to engage in the details because Hunt can do that stuff. I don't think Johnson can. One of the, let me give you an example from the other night. One of the things Johnson referred to in that debate over and over again when to, to deal with Brexit was an implementation period. There isn't an implementation period unless we sign the withdrawal agreement. If we leave on the 31st of October, we become a third country overnight. And he said that not once, not twice, but thrice. And, and well, that's his unicorn, and that's his strategy. The one that really got my wicker, he kept talking about Article 24 of the General Agreement of Tariffs and Trades. And it's like, no, like, you have to have an agreement with the other side. Yeah. Like, it's it's a complete non-start. So that would not be a no-deal Brexit. That would not be a no-deal Brexit. Um, I mean, my, my, my last point on Johnson will be... <laughs> I, 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 I... Johnson was tremendously helped by Theresa May's ridiculous, vain refusal to just fucking quit um, or defer, you know, after the European elections. If you'd put in a formal resignation, even after agreeing a schedule that meant she got to carry on for a couple of months, she, she no, you'd have had, you could have stretched out this ballot stage for MPs. Yeah. You wouldn't have had the campaign basically, because this campaign began. The, the, the day after the European elections. Yeah. But because Theresa May did not formally quit for another two weeks, it had to be done sotto voice. So you had things where, like, loyal cabinet ministers 
couldn't do formal launches. Yeah. Johnson, as a front runner, didn't do a launch either. Completely outside of government. Because he didn't, he didn't, because he didn't want to. If she had just quit at the end of May, even if you say the first, but even if you keep a, a roughly similar schedule, you would have allowed for more public debate. You'd allowed broadcasters to organise more hustings. You'd have brought it all out into the open and really challenged Johnson. Because this is a point that like, people like Simon Bush have been making quite a bit. Look, either he's an electability candidate or he isn't. If he's an electability candidate, why are you hiding him? Yeah. Like the stuff that you're not letting him do is meant to be the stuff that he's good at. Now, the reality is, Johnson isn't actually very good at being put under pressure asking questions. You know, it's not something he's ever done. And I think one of the things the Toy Party may quickly realise is, I think, no, we often talk about which American president could do the MQs. Johnson is a British politician that could be American president. Yeah. His skills as a politician naturally fit on to that kind of head of state role where you're kind of treated with kid gloves, you're not often invited to do scrutiny, but you are meant to be there to kind of G up the country, do big speeches, do the odd debates, you know, be kind of like this avuncular presence in people's lives. Yeah. I, 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 I think people may be surprised how bad a politician Johnson is as Prime Minister. Yeah, I, I agree. And I mean, well, we'll talk about this more in the weeks to come, but if he does become Prime Minister, I don't think he's going to be a successful. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that more in the weeks to come. Yeah. I mean, my, 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 but my gut at the moment, I've said it before, Jose Mourinho politics. I, I still believe Jose Mourinho would have been a very good successor for Alex Ferguson. But by the time he got the job, it was too late. Um, Manu was in the position where what Mourinho could offer is what they needed. Mourinho had become embittered and had become a lesser person. I think the strategy for Johnson of uniting the Brexiteers, intimidating Labour MPs to vote through wherever the Tory party agrees with the EU. That is no longer the situation we're in. Yeah. And what you have is a situation where you have a broken back Tory party. You have, as hurtling to the 31st of October, and everyone knows the Tory party is the only entity that can't survive a failure to agree a deal in September, October. The EU will survive it. The Labour Party will survive it. The Liberal Democrats will survive it. The Labour Party will survive it damaged. Well, it no, I, I think the damage has already been done. I mean, it, in retrospect, Jeremy Corbyn would be much wiser to kind of turn a encouraging blind eye to his backbenchers to go through a Theresa May deal in January, February. Yeah. He'd almost there's a good chance to be Prime Minister by now. Yeah. Um, if the DUP had responded by collapsing the government. Anyway, but, 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 but that is not where we are now. I do not see how Johnson is a guy to bring people together to get this deal through. It doesn't it seem like he has an idea. No. Like his idea is, May's deal without the backstop. 
But that may not pass either because of the promises he's made. The problem with Johnson Miller, he he has worked whole parliamentary party with with Steve Baker and Mac Hancock both believe he agreed for them on Brexit. But those two people don't agree. So you are going to you're going to let their and I mean to some extent Theresa May did this in two thousand and sixteen. No again you said but this not as blatantly No, this is the thing though. At that point Matt Hancock and Steve Baker did not realise they disagreed. Fair enough, yeah Every, that's about why Yeah, everybody thought we're gonna get Brexit Yes, we need to press a no deal, but it will be fine, we'll go deal the Europeans. Everybody, everybody is a wiser now, and Johnson hasn't picked a side. And you've already seen it where, like, he's, he's been pushed through as a hard Brexiteer candidate, whilst being very careful not to say he actually is committed to that 31st of October deadline. So, yeah, I... I don't know. And also... We have today news that there's going to be a by-election. Another mm. successful recall petition. This recall in election. And this re- do you want to talk about the recall? But is because it's, it's sure had a comeback. Basically, it's if um, if the your MP has been found to have either um, violated the law or violated the rules around expenses. Um, What's the percentage of the constituency? So, so the way it works is it's, it's a custodial sentence of, I think, more, than a, more than a year? Six months. More than six months. And a suspension from the House of Commons of more than six weeks. Yeah. Um, um, and I think, things like, I think there's also one for community service as well. Yeah. Which is where the, this MP has kind of fell Okay. Back. And then it's 10% of the constituency, yeah. voters, not population, 10% of the eligible voters in the constituency had to sign a petition to ask for another election, to ask for a by-election. Now this was like a much watered down version of Clegg's initial idea of a withdrawal bill. Because Clegg wanted like a Californian style Withdrawal bill, recall bill, um, and 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 they quickly realised that in our system of very organised parties, you would, it, would be, it would be a doorway to our and so that, that that's why they had to trigger, and so people couldn't, and then they set the ten percent to actually do the recall, quite high as well, and so it, 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 it looked up to everybody like this is a non-fit. Yeah, and that was confirmed when Ian Paisley Jr. was not successfully recalled. But since then, we've had in Peterborough and in this constituency, which I've forgotten, Bracken and Randall. We've had two successful recall petitions: one in a Labour seat, one in a Tory seat. Yeah. So it does look like this is a real thing. This actually will be important. Yeah. But the thing is, the Tory majority in 2017 was just over eight thousand. Was just over eight thousand. Lib Dems in second place, Clyde uh, quite close behind them, and quite close behind Lib Dems at third. Local, um, the national opinion polls and Lib Dem performance in Wales in the recent European elections, and the fact that Lib Dems hold the seat in the, in the Senate, in the Assembly, in Cardiff, 
would suggest that they start this by-election campaign as fairly heavy favourites. And they're really good in things. They've made their leader, the Lib Dem leader in Wales, is a candidate. Yeah. I mean, it's... it's it well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a top target seat. But it, uh, this, this, they held this, what, from 97 to 2015? Yes. So it, it would take a mind a miracle for the Tories to hold this. I mean the only the only the only problem come for the Tories have got is that Clyde and the Lib Dems both gain votes and the Tories come through the middle, possibly. The one the one thing against that is there was a strong UKIP vote in 2015, so the Tories will, will be struggling with um, there'll presumably be a Brexit. The, the possibility of a Brexit party uh, Taking votes off them? I mean, the constituency as a whole is 52%, like 48% remain. Can we just have de- these guys determine what happens? Yeah, um, so that, in the, assuming the Lib Dems win, that brings the government's majority down to two. Now, their working majority is slightly high. I bet they figure it's their working majority. But it is two, isn't it? It's two, it would be two. We already mentioned on a previous podcast the rumours that Philip Lee, the Conservative MP for Bracknell, might jump ship to the Liberal Democrats. So there is a, there is a possibility that shortly after taking office, Boris Prime Minister Johnson will have lost his majority. Well, this is the thing. Like this is what I'm sure is keeping people in the palace up at night. Because if both of those things, like say if John, because we won't know the by-election results no. before Johnson's prime minister. No, Johnson will become prime minister. If Philip Leavis is a Fed before Johnson becomes prime minister, I really think there is an argument to hold your horses. I don't, I don't see the argument the Tory party could be allowed to impose a prime minister in the country when, when no one is. The, 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 when the when the one seat majority is in question, well, they wouldn't have it because the way it works is yeah, he is no longer an MP. Yeah, he is out. Yeah, you take that off the board. Um, I mean, the, the one thing is presumably the palace would have to do some kind of soundings as to whether there was a Corbyn-led alternative, as to whether a Corbyn-led alternative was Like increasingly, I do think the best thing for all concerned would just be to go to Treaty of May. Do you, oh, do you have any plans in August? <laughs> if not, can you say as Prime Minister until the first week of September and we just get this inevitable election over with? Yeah, we are barreling towards the general election. But my point is, like, get, you do it now. Yeah. Let's do it now. Then you still have two months after the election for the crash negotiations of the European Union. It's possible. It's possible Philip Lee can be bought off. As I said before, he's very unlikely to be the Conservative MP for Bracknell in the next election, whenever that might be. His association is deeply unhappy. Uh, he hasn't been deselected, but he has been subject to a vote of no confidence, which is one step on the road to being deselected. Feels very unsettling, all these Tory, Tory uh, members thinking that they get a say in a Tory party. I know! What are, what are they thinking? They're Conservatives! They, they'll be asking... If they wanted all this nonsense, you should have joined the Labour Party! <laughs> they'll, be asking, they'll be asking to help set policy next. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so... Are we moving on to look at Theresa May's legacy? Um... Yeah. 
You go first, Luke. What's her legacy? Well, actually, no. I mean, listen, if, oh, do you have something to go back to again? Here we go. Move off. No. So, Theresa May's greatest achievement as Prime Minister now. Negotiating a good withdrawal agreement, but being totally unable to explain why it was good. Yeah, that's not achievement, Luke, because... No, no, no. I it, know what, to be fair. It's half an achievement. You know what was an achievement? If if her successor can get us out. Uh, I'm not sure it's her achievement. I think it's more the civil services achievement. They got all the secondary legislation for us to leave the European Union through Parliament, something that everybody said was impossible. Yeah, that is a day. Like so they literally had Parliament. Because the way secondary legislation works is you basically just read it out. Yeah, so it means, in a mecha- at least in a mechanical sense, we can leave on the 31st of October. It would, that's not saying we, sh- we will or we should, but it's legally possible for us to do. So, the thing is, right, when you try and state our achievements, they are so, like, even if you try and be nice, they're so pathetically small. So, like, I think the stuff she did, like things like gender pay gap reporting and the racial disparities audit and the, 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 the government commission survey of LGBT people, this is, this is stuff that appeals to me because like, it was like it was stuff that she you know, was requested by Number 10, Number 10 initiatives, and they're that type of using the government's power to generate information that helps guide policy developments in organisations. Like using a big stick of yeah, government. So it's, it's the power of actually knowing, of actually yeah. being able to generate empirical data. And like I know from William, just the fact that there is that there is this gender pay gap reporting process has meant that we now know our gender pay gap. Yeah. We are surprised by it and we are taking steps to yeah. To kind of counteract it. So, but, I mean, that would be a good achievement for, 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 for like a community. Mid ranking minister. Yeah, like a community secretary. Yeah. Like yeah. if the local government and community secretary or the minister for equalities had that on their ledger, you'd well be like, done. You'd be like yeah. well done. You, we'd, be like, we'd look at you for a promotion to a serious job. Yes. Um, But it's not really, it's pretty small beer for a Prime Minister. Um, and so then you're looking at it and you're like, well, there's nothing. I mean, I do think that, I do think the withdrawal agreement... Well, they've got to leave the agreement, but she hasn't passed it. So but it is a good agreement. It is a good agreement, but she hasn't passed it. So, seriously, outside of the Brexit, um, what is her achievement? I honestly believe, we had this conversation before, and you've created your own insane standard um, about if you do something bad as Prime Minister, at least the people die in. That means you go to the head of the bad Prime Minister. I'm sorry, that just, that just seems like common sense to me. <laughs> Politics has nothing to do with common sense. How many times do I have to tell you? Um, at least Eden managed to get a popular budget through and win a general election. and with a thumping majority it was like 60 or yeah but the, 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 you have to remember this is two party uh, politics yeah, at its height so like he, he got 
he got the highest percentage share of any toy prime minister in like the 20th century like it was almost 50 percent yeah um so and no the invasion of the Suez Canal did work yeah. like it was quite a well concocted strategy no what it really was oh uh, we can sit here for two hours while I explain why <laughs> um, well, the reason why is is you, you, you evaded Egypt because he blocked the Suez Canal and you ended up blocking it with a bunch of sunk ships ships yeah um so here's, here's the question for you then. are we agreeing she has no achievement I think I, I think I, no, I, I'm saying not. Yeah, I would agree. She's got no. Achievements. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you sort of want to give her some points for keeping the show on the road. But that's not the But the like, in retrospect, that was a disaster. Yeah, would have been in such a bad position if she'd had a majority of thirteen. Well, there's anything like, like we were in such a bad position if she had just imploded as she should have in late 2017. The fact that she's been able to drag it on, drag it on, drag it on, that's fine. So the, so the, question, the, question, um, the question I want to ask, because I think this, I think this really gets to the heart of the is Theresa May, was she... Well, the circumstances in which she became Prime Minister, you know, are, were historical. And the challenges facing her were probably bigger than any peacetime Prime Minister. Probably post in history, No, I think that people say this, they do forget like you had It's the most complex diplomatic negotiations as Versailles. Yes, we do forget you have things like decolonisation. Prime Minister had to grapple with in the 50s and 60s. Yes, but they, you were, have... they, were, they, were, they were complex foreign policy problems. Their domestic um, dimension was pretty small. It was, but they, these things can go horribly wrong. And then they did. And they things, did, yeah. Like they, the didn't, they didn't affect the UK when they did. Um, look, to me, like... I guess what, I guess what I'm saying is... What's true is it saying, her fault? Is it her fault? Yes. Well... Nick Timothy's fault. But the, 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 the fatal flaw of Theresa May always was she couldn't make up her mind about whether her premiership, what her premiership was for. There were two ways she could have handled her premiership. One was I came after the referendum, Brexit is my number one priority, all things Brexit, I control Brexit, I push through Brexit. The end. The other one was, I was a Remainer, I can set the perimeters, but I really need the Brexiteers that I've appointed to the three relevant roles of trade, uh, foreign and Brexit. I really need them to, to, Crushed, to, push this to actually agree the deal. And what happened is, is they will handle that and I will work on my own priorities. And she did neither. She sought to micromanage Brexit and also sought to do a load of other pro- projects. But I mean, that was, that was the thing. That was the thing. I, I, so, 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 the thing that destroyed her premiership was the fact that she lost her majority. But well, the only reason she sought her majority 
was because she wanted to push through a load of things that had nothing to do with Brexit. The parliament she had in 2017 was a parliament that would have backed the withdrawal agreement because because the Labour Party was broken backed. Like, you know, Jeremy Corbyn wasn't popular. Jeremy, if he hadn't had the election, he would not have had the kind of the campaign to become popular. We'd have had a very deeply divided Labour Party, a deeply divided Labour Party, writ of the withdrawal, of the possibility of an election. You would have been able to pass some form of agreement with Labour votes. But she wouldn't have been able to get grammar schools. She wouldn't be able to get a social care policy through. She wouldn't be able to get the kind of the balance in the books stuff through. And so I think that is Theresa May's greatest flaw. She was cool to a moment in British history that you know what is again, I think people exaggerate, I think they they forget how fraught a lot of post-war British history was. But it was one of the major challenges this country has faced outside of wartime. And she wanted to dick around opening grammar schools. Yeah, I mean, I've never, I've never understood the idea that Theresa May was going to be too great for social, social and economic reformers. You are a Brexit Prime Minister. <laughs> that is your legacy. Whether you like it or not, you are going when the history books are open, no one is gonna no one is gonna judge you by anything other than Brexit. And you know what? That was clear in 2017. And if that's if that's me sitting there as a newly made Prime Minister, I welcome that. Because I already know what my I already know what my legacy is. I already know what I'm gonna be remembered for. Most Prime Ministers would give their back teeth for that. Most Prime Ministers have to go looking for their moment in history. They have to find it, they have to make it. The other thing as well is, is she really did, egged on by Nick Timothy, really did look at Brexit as a as a, as a political cudgel. Yeah. Um, never tried to bind Labour into the process in a way to make it easier for Labour MPs to support her. Said stuff without fully realising what it meant. So, like, she kind of did a broadside about no ECJ... Um, no ECJ jurisdiction over the UK. Thinking of the ECJ as kind of like the social dimension. No, the uh, oh, law and citizenship pillar yeah. of the European Union. Home affairs. Home affairs, yeah, home affairs pillar. Not realising that the ECJ is what polices the single market, the customs union. As so by saying no ECJ jurisdiction over the UK, you are signing up for a very hard Brexit. Yeah. So, she, she, she got a good agreement at the end, but her inability to sell it was not a, she couldn't sell it, she couldn't sell this good agreement, was that the decision she had made had so, had basically set a political climate where nobody, not even the greatest communicator, could have sold that agreement. I think there's, I think there's some truth in that.
moment, you know, you've got this whole thing, you've got this whole thing very snidely at the beginning of a premiership. We're not going to give a running commentary on Brexit. But that's not how politics works now. Particularly politics on something as controversial as that. If you're not explaining constantly, you're losing. And you can't run government as a conspiracy. You've got to make choices, you can't. Keeping your options open is not a virtue in an office. I, I look, if this isn't the benefit of hindsight, I would have been a, like, a mass public consultation exercise, yes. similar to 2016, you know. Not citizens assemblies, because they're stupid, but like forums, think tanks, it would have been, submissions yeah, from civil society. That's basically a big version of beer and sandwiches around down the street. You get the CBI in, you get the TUC in, you get the think tanks. But a little bit more than that, like, actually talk to people about yeah. what what is it we're trying to achieve, what are your uh, worries. Going back to political cudgel stuff, the other issue with Theresa May was is that she basically was obsessed with reassuring the hard Brexiteers and in doing so she kind of made Brexit seem very alien to Remainers. She kind of encouraged this... But I think that is with the benefit of hindsight. No, because I hate this of nowhere at the time. Um, it encouraged this sense of it being a culture. Um, and what it would have been a bit fine time was, is she encouraged the, Brexit, the Brexiteers to increase their price. Yeah, to, to basically to basically come up with a version of Brexit that was far harder than the one vote leave was pushing yeah. into in the referendum. Because the withdrawal agreement is arguably a far harder version of Brexit. That what vote leave were arguing in the referendum. Yeah. I do think I do think what's I do think what's both quite funny and kind of sad is to watch in the last few days as Theresa May desperately tries to get Philip Hammond to shovel money out the door in a vain attempt to have achievement. That that is a the Stubborn Brexit is like a, second, a first big failure, but the second big failure really is appointing Hammond to... Well, cabinet, make, cabinet making as a whole. Yeah, I mean, like David Davis was Brexit secretary, like, was it clear about what it meant to be Brexit secretary? Like, they'd always intended to do what Stephen Barclay is doing now, which is, you're the guy managing the home front, but Davis thought he was basically Minister the lead, for Europe. Yeah, the lead negotiator. Um, and in fairness, that, that was not an unreasonable thing for David Davis to think, given how Theresa May had designed the job. But like, if I'd have been in David Davis's shoes, I would have made exactly that same calculation. Also, you would not pick David Davis to be the logistics guy. Now, the guy is a former uh, Minister for Europe. He's not known as a details guy. It, and I mean, it, you would not pick him to do logistics. Let me just go back to this thing. She wanted to be a more centrist Tory Prime Minister, she wanted to do, to kind of improve the public services, she wanted to end austerity, she was right to austerity had gone on. Austerity should never have begun, but it's gone on for too long. And she picked a Chancellor that would not let her do it. Yeah. And it hamstrung, and like, look, even with all the mistakes she made, if she'd been able to turn a taps off in June 2016, she might well have gotten a majority in uh, 
gave his apology for the Sunday. You say the House of Commons as a Tory party got closer to the DUP as of 2015. Like, for the love of God! Yeah, let's not get Yeah, let's trigger. We're trigger. Be on for hours. <laughs> trigger info. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, so I mean, as you know, she has got one achievement, and it's a real achievement. God, destroyed George Osborne's political career. Yes, yes. And that's, that's an achievement to save her, wherever you are. And by the way, did you see that Evening Standard editorial endorsing Boris Johnson? Yeah, that that was that that all that needed was I, I write this on my own free will, as is uh, Eugene Ledloff, and it points a gun to his head. So, have you seen a worse written? Like I would, like I would mark if that was one of my student essays. I would mark that down for the spelling and grammar. Oh, okay, but I, I, I didn't notice that. I didn't notice how passive aggressive it was. Yeah, no. It was, it was, yeah, no. I mean, yeah, we endorse Boris Johnson if he, if he stops being Boris Johnson. But yeah, it was just, it, I'm not saying it was badly written in the sense it wasn't, it wasn't poetry. I mean, from the sense that it was just ungrammatically written. <laughs> the. So yes, Theresa May, bit shit. Yeah. Like seriously, there's Eden. Eden is like the bad prime minister. Yeah. Like people say David Cameron and stuff like that. It's like our oh, job. No. Yeah. No. Like, whatever you I think that, like I, I don't like David Cameron. I don't like what the government, his government did. But he achieved things. You know, the whole point was those achievements were right or wrong. That's different. That's a different. That's a value judgment. Same thing like. Edward Heath. I vehemently disagree with Edward Heath achieved. But, but it was an achievement. But it was an achievement taking us into European uh, economic community. Um, I think Wilson's final tenure, 74-76, 74-76, was really awful. Um, I mean, that had long-term negative consequences for the country. But even he had... The, e, the EEC referendum, yeah, which he played pretty much perfectly. I mean, also you had a lot, you had a lot of, you had a lot of what for want of a better umbrella term called quality of life legislation. Yeah. So yeah. things, so things like things like equal, things like the Sex discrimination, Sex yeah. discrimination act, things like um, ACA, things like ACAS being established, yeah. mandate, um, statutory leave being like yeah. massively. These were things that made people's lives better. Um, I mean, you, you bring up you bring up Wilson's last government. There is a really interesting connection there, I think, to Theresa May. In that, one of the things they will both be remembered for is a completely dysfunctional Downing Street. Yeah, and for, and for some of the same reasons, actually. They were too close. Yeah. So, yeah, so Dick Timothy, Fiona Hill, era of, of Theresa May. Um, and it was weird because, like, <laughs> it's the order, is it? Because the, 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 the Gavin Barwell? Yeah. Gavin Barwell, Theresa May down the street, by all accounts, wasn't dysfunctional. But it did not function as well. No. As the previous, like, it wasn't as effective as a political force. I think the thing is, Gavin Barwell was imposed upon Theresa May. As a chief of staff, so I don't. 
we will find this out when Tim Shipman publishes his next book. But I have never got the sense that Gavin Barwell has had her complete confidence, or the other way around. I feel, I think, like Mark said, well, there's cabinet secretary and um, Holland Robbins as sort of Brexit Sherpa have been able to bypass it fairly easily. Um, Which is, I mean, I don't, I don't, you don't, in the British system, you don't necessarily, the chief of staff position is something of an innovation that I'm not sure is strictly necessary, but if you're going to have it, it needs to be somebody who has your complete trust as Prime Minister. The, the government, so you have that Wilson government, Hume is in for such a short period of time, he's neither bad nor good. And I mean... He got the Tory party really close to winning a general election. Really they, did. Had, they had no business being that competitive. He really did. Yeah. Um, and then you got Eden, Suez as yeah. the big thing. Also, just a more general sense of drift, not not being equal to the challenges facing Britain. Firm smack, smack of firm, smack government. Of firm government. Um, so, though we talked about it before, but those who haven't heard it, he, uh, Anthony Eden, you, you would have heard of the Smackerfirm government, or well, I thought you might not have that. It's kind of. Kind of gone out of Yeah, it was kind of something up until the 90s, I want to say. Yeah. But basically, it was a, it was a phrase often used about restoring authority to the British government, a government that's in charge, had a grip on events. And it comes from. Eden had this habit of when he was talking, he would like enunciate his pointers with his right hand. Well, with a hand, I think it was his right hand. The nunsy points with his hand whilst having his his other hand open. And so you'd constantly be doing this thing where it looked like he was about to hit his hand, hit his palm, and he wouldn't. And so I've someone I come through who was I think maybe in Bill Deeds. Yeah. Uh, came up the line. What we need is the smack of firm government to, to kind of highlight Eden's lack of connection. Um, other than that, in the 20th century, say, you know what? I think most of the governments before the Second World War were all right. Yeah. I don't think there was a particularly bad government. It would be the well, worst. I mean, the national government, you know, Great, great Depression. Yeah, but the Great, the great Depression began under Labour, but you actually look at the national government, the, the South was warring back quite yeah. early on. But um, it, it could have taken more aggressive. Uh, but it's still the time though. That was like they were, they were being much more aggressive than most yeah. countries outside of uh, the United States. You know, in terms of um, um, basically trying to keep the, the value of the pound down. Yeah. Like the national government was much better than the Labour government in terms of getting off gold, the gold standards. <laughs> I always love the. Philip Snowden like when they like nobody told nobody told us we could do this. Definitely Snowden. I thought it was one of the Labour ministers that was left. No, it was it was Snowden. A bit. I've I've always so I'm I'm pretty sure it's not. I'm I'm, I'm pretty okay. sure it's one of the Labour MPs okay. that didn't join the national government. Okay. Um, I want to say Klein maybe. Okay. See, I think this is one of the this is one of the this is one of the, the things about not to toot our own horn. This is one of the things I like about our podcast. We try and give a sense of the story. <laughs> <first about it. laughs> um, 
And on that note, we should probably talk about the event that they called the end of history. Um, oh boy! <laughs> now I was like, I did recently rewatch Freds, <laughs> which is available for free on like the dark no, a dark internet site, not yeah. dark web, but like a random internet site. And that that does begin in the Gulf of Oman and you know, straight home, straight to Hormuz. Yeah, and clash uh, tension between the Soviet Union, America, and the various Middle Eastern states. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, the Iranians maybe shelled a Japanese oil tanker, planted planted mines onto Japanese oil tankers. Now. I want to be. I want to be quite sort of sober. I want to sort of try and do this as analytically. Speak, speak for yourself. Do this as analytically as possible. What happened was that uh, what I mean, mine is a mine is a misnomer for what we're talking about because you think of mine, you think of mine feel, you think of something quite important. What we're really talking about here is a sticky bomb that you attach to the side of the ship and it blows up. Um, now. On one hand, the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, has the capability to both produce Olympic mines in large numbers and the ability to plant them, and it has a track record of doing so. Between 1986 and 1988, in the latter stages of the Iran-Iraq War, the so-called War of the Tankers, Iran and Iraq were deliberately targeting each other, were deliberately targeting both each other's tankers, and because the Saudis and Kuwaitis were providing financial support to Iraq through very soft weapons, Iran also targeted Kuwaiti and Saudi tankers. That's why you've got the entire Kuwaiti tanker fleet reflagged as the United States. The, the US did that, took, took action against the Iranian Navy, didn't they? Maybe? Yeah, they did. They did. Not only did they take direct action against the Iranian Navy, they also destroyed Iran's oil terminals. The, one of them was Karj, and I can't remember what the other one was called. Because the way oil is actually gotten from the dot, from land to the ship, you don't come up to a pier and load it up on barrels. There is a pipeline that runs out to a point at sea where the oil tanker literally comes in over the top of the pipe and hooks, and hooks onto it. Um, so yeah, the Iranians have a track record of doing this, they have the capability to do this, and the US has released footage of what looks like Iranian, Iranian IRGC motorboats um, with Iranian markings on them that are doing something to the side of, they're attaching or taking off something to the side of one of these oil tankers. Now, that footage has been heavily edited. It constantly zooms in and out and there are large things you don't see. And it's, it's also worth noting, the Saudis also have the capability to do this. And I would not put it past Mohammed bin Sultan to stage this as a problem as a provocation, who knows that the nightmare scenario for the United States, indeed the nightmare scenario for the world at large, is a closure of the Straits of Hormuz. It's the nightmare scenario of the United States, and indeed in most of the rest of the world, you're talking about blocking about a third of the world's oil supply. Um, now, if this
anything happened a decade ago would have had really negative consequences immediately for the United States and Europe due to uh, due to shale. That's now much less. The, the effects would be much slower. The US is largely energy independent. The US is largely energy independent now, and Europe has through investment in renewables and frankly by purchasing a lot of oil from Russia become much less dependent on Middle East. And switching to gas as well. Switching to gas. So it's become much less dependent directly on Middle East oil. Where it would have an immediate and devastatingly negative impact would be in Asia, particularly Japan, South Korea, Malaysia. And the ripple effect the ripple effect of that on the global economy would be severe and would be with the with the interconnected global supply chains would be felt fairly rapidly. But crucially it wouldn't have the same kind of direct impact on the US that it would have had a decade ago. Now we know that the, the Trump administration has pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. We know that it's reimposed sanctions. We know that it's threatened secondary sanctions on any company that continues to trade with Iran. Which is important because the Americans control the national, the international financing system. The EU has no shadow banking system, and so they have no way of protecting companies that trade with Iranians. Yeah. Now. Actually, something quite significant happened, which is not the EU but Britain, France, Germany, and the and the rest of the EU collectively decided to essentially set up their own mini version of SWIFT, the international payment system, to essentially um, bypass that US restriction when it came to Iran. Listeners, I, I don't know how successful. Will is rolling his eyes like he's about to faint. Like, what is behind this pseudo swift? Answer: Fuck all. It can't work. The euro is too weak to challenge the challenge the American financial systems until the EU gets shits and gets off, gets off the pot. Ideally, in that order. Yeah, and establishes. Um, a currency that actually works. Yeah, it establishes a a, 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 like a backstop to the euro, a, a, a single shared uh, fiscal, space. fiscal space, single shared debt instrument. The euro is far too vulnerable to go to war with the dollar. I, I, agree, I agree with all of that, but, but this is the inevitable consequence of politicising SWIFT. Which is why previous U.S. administrations, until Obama opened North Korea and Iran, have never done it before, because it gives the U.S. enormous invisible power. Um, and if you use it, you lose it. Yeah, and if you use it, you lose it. Except the fact that the Europeans are hopeless. Yeah, yeah. But but in a, in a few years' time, a Chinese version of Swift. I don't think a Russian version of Swift, because Russia isn't big enough economy to sustain it. But a Chinese version of Swift, or more likely a more generalised Asian version of Swift, could welcome to be. I'm moving forward when we finally leave the European Union, and then we can start freely advocating 
for greater European integ integration to combat the Americans. It's going to be good times. Now, I, I, I'm just waiting to rejoin the Trans-Pacific Trans Partnership. And then that really will be Trans-Pacific, trans baby. It will literally transcend the Pacific. Um, anyway. So anyway, so yeah, so... And, and, the reason why that was done was that the, 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 the Americans decided to end the uh, Iranian nuclear agreement, which was basically the, the Iranians stopped their investment, their development of nuclear technology in return for, for basically the end of peace sanctions. Well, it's, that's, not, that's not quite accurate. You? Go on. In the sense that it ran... Iran was permitted, Iran is permitted and continues to have a civil nuclear industry. What it gave up was the right to reprocess anything other than a very small amount of uranium. So you can't get to it, you can't get to a level of enrichment of uranium that would be suitable for a weapon. Um, Iran, Iran has pulled out of parts of that agreement, it maintains parts of that agreement. Essentially, what it's doing. Trying to drive a wedge between the US and Europe. Well, I think you're trying to exploit the wedge that exists, is probably a better yeah. way of putting it. Yeah, because I, you're right. Because like, the Iranians were complying with the agreement pretty much. Few issues on the margins, but I don't think anybody thought that their bad behaviour was to a level that justified no. cancelling the agreement. The Americans, no the Americans cancel the agreement to make a political point. The Europeans aren't happy. The Europeans try and keep it going. But because of what Luke is talking about, because the Europeans can't stop the Americans punishing their companies that don't, buy by, don't abide by the sanctions, even though your British and European companies British and European companies are technically subject to them. They, they are, are in effect. And so the benefits of the Iranian economy that came from the end of sanctions have gone into reverse. Yeah, and the Iranian economy is really suffering. It's got better, it's got it's got extremely high inflation, um, limited limited access to limited access to consumer goods, particularly technological technological sophisticated consumer goods, but also the uh, best example of this Iranian civil aviation. Uh, one of the major drivers from the Iranian point of view in signing the deal was that if they didn't get replacement spare parts with the civilian aircraft, airliners were literally going to start falling out of the sky. Uh, you've, got, you've got difficulty accessing sophisticated healthcare for the so you then have an American surveillance drone was shot down over Iranian airspace. That's contested. Shot down either over or near Iranian yeah. airspace. Um, 
By the way, say it's contested, which side do you believe? It's difficult because, like, there's, there is a genuine disagreement between Iran and the rest of the world as to where its territorial waters and their space stop. Uh, so okay. it's, one of, it's one of those instances where they could both be right. So what's the disagreement? Uh, basically, 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 the, Iran the, Iranian, the Iranians claim ownership of a, little tiny scraps of Iran in the, in the, in the which, from their perspective, extends their territory. And they would if you accept, yeah, accept their ownership. Yes. But people contest that ownership of that. Yes. It's not, not land, it's li they're literally, they're barely islands. What are they? It's like a little thing that barely, barely gets above the water. The Iranians are basically trying to gain the international laws of the sea. Yeah. Um, no, they're not, they're not the only people, everybody does. Oh, yeah, yes. I mean, this, that is what they do. Yeah. Except us, because we just sing War Britannia and that's the end of it. <laughs> um, Don't tell the Irish. <laughs> no, you know, I've seen this, there's a really big, um, it's really something kid. There's a tiny little rock off the north, in, in the North Atlantic that both the UK and the Republic of Ireland claim ownership over. Like, the, it's a big deal in Scotland. Because there have been Scottish fishing boats and Irish fishing boats like coming to blow, coming to blow them. It's, it's literally a little. Is it Craggy Island? It's not even Craggy Island. Nobody lives on it because it's not large. It, it was open with a joke. It was a joke I made to you, or, or I think it was like maybe our friend Hamish, yeah. Hamish Stewart, which is if we ever have Scottish independence, we should demand to keep the coast so we get to keep the oil. Yeah. The only. Um, the only thing that's ever been on that little island was a pirate radio station in the 1960s. Um, wait a minute. So this drone was shot down? Yeah. At the loss of numerous pieces of computer equipment and circuitry. About drones worth about $135 million. The Pentagon can't spend all the money Congress gives them. They'll cope. Yeah. Um, claims are the insurance. Um, people, this is what we don't know. We don't know if Trump authorised it or if it was authorised through the very extensive delegated powers he has given commanders, commanders in theatre. Which, yeah, it's really frightening actually, the amount of leeway they have. But a airstrike in retaliation taking out Iranian radar anti-air defence uh, installations was commissioned. It was 10 minutes away from being from the airstrikes commencing and Trump asked, by the way guys, this won't kill anybody, will it? Oh, uh, about 150 about give or take. 150 people, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, can we cancel it? What? Scrap it! Do you want to do it? <laughs> and so it didn't happen. But you literally had planes in flight. You had ships in position. This was about to happen. Yeah. Um, so Luke, push out for you before we go into the nitty gritty of the issue. Could you explain what the War, War Powers Act is and why does it exist still? <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
I mean, I can explain about the 1973 war powers that you really want me to. The, the more extraordinary thing is Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, and John Bolton, the National Security Advisor, have been making the mind-bending argument that this action would be legal under the um, authorization to use military force of 2001 against Al-Qaeda. That, that's not mind-bending. Everything's said to be legal under that. But there's nothing the American government can't do. To use, to use Lyndon Johnson's phrase about the Gulf um, of resolution, it's like Grandma's nightshirt. It covers everything. Um, <laughs> do you actually want me to say? No, no, no. The, the joke I was making yeah. is he was about to launch this action without any any discussion in Congress. Seemingly no discussion in cabinet or the National Security um, Council. Yeah, but I mean the first part of that is standard practice. Well, that's the point. Like it's not meant to be. There's meant to be the War Powers Act because of the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. That is meant to kind of quite put quite strictly limitations on the, Amer- the American president's yeah, ability that's, that's, to that, start war. That's true. So the War Powers Act has never been used, and probably isn't constitutional. Um, because because there, there is no there is no mechanism in the War Powers Resolution that would allow the President to veto the resolution as it passed through Congress. Now that's never been that's never been tested in the courts. But there was a piece of immigration legislation in the nineteen eighties that was tested all the way up to the Supreme Court that contained the same mechanism of concurrent um, concurrent congressional resolutions without the possibility of the veto. And that was found that was found to be unconstitutional. The president and the president must have the opportunity to veto any resolution or bill sent to him by motels The point is ideally we're gonna start a action that could lead to war with Iran. You should have Congress engaged. Yeah. That hadn't happened. The fascinating thing with this is Trump is what is between us and war. You know, John Bolton, Mike Pompeo. never met a war he didn't like. Never met a war he didn't like. Except Bosnia. He didn't like Bosnia, did he? I don't know. I don't think he liked Bosnia. But yeah, John Bolton never met a war he didn't like. Mike Pompeo is very much a kind of uh, traditional Iran hawk. I mean, you have to remember that people like Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld wanted to go after Iran in the noughties. And even the disasters that Iraq became did not dissuade them of that fact. It's only how unpopular Iraq became and Trump and Bush's decision to replace uh, Rumsfeld, bring out the growing power of Condoleezza Rice, that stopped them going to war with Iran. I mean, I've, because I'm sad, I've gone back and listened to some like um, blogging heads, podcasts from that era. Yeah. Like in 2006, 2007, it was like a live discussion. It was, it really Are was. we going to go to war with Iran? I mean, what do you say? Are we going to go to war? Are we going to bomb them? Mm. 
because there's never, never been a live possibility and there isn't one today of sort of comprehensive military action that would lead to an invasion. And that's, that's the thing that really confuses me because it's all very well the Trump administration putting like maximum, when, when you hear Pompeo and Orton talk, they use the phrase maximum pressure. What they're trying to do through sanctions and through some kind of limited military action is to create enough pressure to cause the red to cause the region to collapse. Now that's dangerous, that's dangerous from a number of points of view. First it does first it doesn't give the first it doesn't give the Iranians an out. Because there's no there's no there's no solution short of the collapse of the government that, um, that Bolton or Pompeo seem to be willing to contemplate it. So they, they, there is no downside from an Iranian point of view in Can you come out? Again, wow. This is the thing that I keep coming back to. It's like, yeah. The reality is. You have to the, 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 the kind of the thing the issue you have is you have this not very cold but against a point of scolding war in the Middle East between Saudi and their Sunni allies and Iran and their Shia or other Alawite terms of their Assad allies. The fact that Iran is run by a bunch of corrupt, crazy mullahs weakens Iran. You replace the Ayatollah, the, like the Islamic revolutionary regime. You do not change the fundamental dynamic of the Middle East, which is you have Shia Iran in conflict with Sunni Saudi Arabia. If you replace the Ayatollahs, the natural thing they will use to unite the country coming out of the Islamic Republic is a form of nationalism. And it will be more effective nationalism because you won't have the division in Iranian society caused by the repressive, corrupt, incompetent regime they have now. I think that's a possibility. But that's... You place them, you're not going to get a regime that wants a place nice for Saudi Arabia. No. And I mean, the thing is, the thing is, the Saudis... Saudis' concerns about spread of the empowerment of Shiris go way beyond the concern with Iran anyway. Um, because they're a minority. Yeah, Saudi, yeah. Saudi Arabia has Saudi Arabia has been it's all a byproduct of the Iraq War because what the Iraq War did for the first time in for the first time since the 14th century, it empowered a Shia-dominated government in the heart of the in the heart of the Arab world. And whether whether the whether the Islamic Republic is overthrown or not, that fact remains. Now, the, I agree with what you're saying, but the one difference, the one difference might be, is that the, the way the Islamic Republic conceives of itself. It is the protector of Shia, the world. No, not actually. I want to be rather like the Israeli government, 
conceives of itself as a protector of jurors. The, the, the links that the Iranian, the Iranian regime have built up to organisations like Hezbollah or in the case of Iraq, the Assam al-Haq or what was the Mahdi army is now a whole variety of different militias. They are partly as tools, as tools of foreign policy, but they're also to fulfil that vocation of providing military assistance to Shia, the world over who the Iranian, the Iranian regime perceives needs to protect. If we don't now continue with a democratic Iran? Well, let's put it another way. The, 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 the Iranian Empire always saw itself as a Persian state and based it on, based its nationalism on the Persian language and Persian cultural tradition rather than on Islam. But I think the point more broadly is Pompeo and Bolton don't know what they're driving towards. They have no concept of what a new Iranian government would do. And because they don't want to invade, they have no ability on the ground to influence what a new Iranian government would look like. But I don't think they're going to push the regime to the point that the Iranian regime gains... The Iranian regime has always gained credibility and support when it can paint itself as the underdog, when it can paint itself as the agreed party. <coughs> and what Trump has done by withdrawing from the Iran deal is not only allowed the Iranian regime to paint itself as the agreed it party, it is the agreed party. It's quite clear which side of this conflict wants war. Yeah, it's driving this. And I also don't think. Bolton and Pompeo, so Bolton and Pompeo don't know, they're applying pressure but they don't know to what end. Whereas when Obama did this, it was clear, when Obama ratcheted up the sanctions, it was clear what he was trying to achieve, which is to get the Iranians to the negotiating table. And it worked, because, because the Trump administration has staked out some maximalist dots. There's no way to resolve this. There's no downside to escalation from the Iranian point of view. And the Iranians have a lot of escalatory options. The other thing is, I was listening to New York Times, one of the points I was made was, is what the Iranians may be trying to do is create a North Korea moment yeah, where it's like a massive crisis, people are scared, and Trump decides that the best thing he can do is rebadge the status quarante as a diplomatic triumph? I mean, I think, I think, if, I think if, you look, if you look at the Trump administration over the last two and a half years, why on earth wouldn't you try and do that? Um, and, I, mean, I, think, I think that's less, that's less likely to work in the case of Iran, simply because for whatever reasons, whether they be... Saudi money! Yes, yeah, Saudi, Saudi money! money. Basically, the Trump administration, I mean, it's, it's a cliche of the last sort of 70 years of American foreign policy that the Americans are close to the Saudis. But I think the Trump administration has probably been closer than any other. And there are all kinds of rumours and whispers of weird side deals. Such as maybe involving the head of his campaign re-election back, Linda McMahon and WWE. 
Yeah, and all sorts of stuff swirling around Jared Kushner. For the, the Jared Kushner, Kushner family real estate business is in was in financial straits and suddenly it suddenly it was. Funny that. Funny that. Um, I love the fact that they're building their investment in 666. I love it. Irony just explodes it. Um, but as I said, so I don't think this. If the, if the Iranians are aiming for that North Korean moment, I don't think they can get it simply because the Saudis have been so effective in. in getting the Trump administration to adopt their war And it's not for nothing that Michael Flynn was Trump's first national security advisor. Because if you look at what Flynn wrote out of office, that is paranoid about it. There is no other word about it. He literally put, literally blames everything going wrong in the world on Iran. I mean, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating much when I say that, and I do, I do think actually, there's one person that has had an impact on how Donald Trump sees, sees these sorts of things. I think it was Michael. Just ask me a question. Um, it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated, nuanced international relations question, right? Which country? Did the 9-11 bombers come from? Was it Iran or was it, I don't know, Saudi Arabia? It was Saudi Arabia. Is there any evidence of any Iranian terrorism on the American mainland? No. That being said, there is strong evidence that the Iranians have supported terrorism directly against the US. Yeah, the, the tax on the military installations, and particularly also, in Iraq. And also in Iraq, in, Le- in, Lebanon, in Lebanon, but also, but also increasing, on the logic of the enemy of my enemy being my friend, there is a good deal of circumstance, there is quite a lot of evidence to suggest that at least part of Al-Qaeda found after 9-11, Found, found a certain amount of refuge. But is there also direct evidence yeah. that the Iranians want to invade Afghanistan in 1999 yeah. and deal with the Taliban and Osama bin Laden yeah, yeah, there and then? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's the thing, I don't. I don't. I don't. Because here's we we should say, because this is something we haven't said. The, 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 glim, the gleam in the Obama administration's eye. Nothing more than that. But the gleam, a gleam... Yeah, I think it was a notion. Was that the natural ally of America in the Middle East is Iran. Iranian society is much, is much more liberal, permissive than any other Middle Eastern country. Um, you can make an argument based on great, great power dynamics. You always back the underdog because they really need you, um, and and also it wouldn't be the worst thing to make the Saudis work for the Americans' affection. Yeah, and also, and also, let's face it, the US has become by the year less dependent on Saudi Arabia. Now, I just want to go back and clarify something I said a minute when I said that the elements of Al Qaeda found their way into Iraq, they weren't um, they weren't being supported by the Iranians. Essentially, they were being held hostage 
by the Iranian-fired elements within the IRGC. Who, what it looks IRGC? Like, yeah, what it looks like. IR Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, the sort of intelligence. They're kind of a cross between the KGB and the Buffalo Jets. Um, and what it looks like they were trying to do was trade um, these Al Qaeda members, these Al Qaeda members, some of which took one level below, so I hear him in like to the US in some sort of in, in some sort of Repeatedly, it does seem like the Iranians are always trying to make a deal with the Americans. Yeah. But there doesn't seem to be that there is a instinctive hostility. Like they basically just want the Amer they want the same deal with America that the Saudis have, which is you let those do us. Yeah. But we're still friends. Where the Americans say, no, you get the deal, Panama gets, where. You behave yourself and we'll be friends. I mean, I think, I th I think the, the difference is that where the Saudis try to spread revolution and religious proselytizing through money, the Iranians do it through guns. The Saudis do that to that. Pardon? The Saudis do that too now. Yeah, they do, and that's why. And that's why. That's why up until the Trump administration, the U.S.-Saudi alliance, really since the last two years of the Bush administration, um, has been, been in decline and been in decline. So anyway, we have gone very long. Not as long as the previous one. Uh, no, I think this is longer. Um, for so yes, yeah, so. Do you think the Americans will ever actually do the airstrikes? I think the odds are 50-50. Um, uh, by the way, I think if they do, it's a prelude to a much larger conflict. Uh, revolting Iraq? I think, you'd have, I think you'd have a revolt in Iraq. I think you would almost certainly have another war between Israel and Hezbollah. Yemen. Yeah, and there is... Pardon? A renewed conflict in Yemen. Well, the, 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 but like more, more a more intense conflict in Yemen, possibly. Um, but interestingly, the FBI uh, last week uh, arrested the Hezbollah self operating in New York, and we've had pretty we've had decent circumstantial evidence that Hezbollah certainly used the Iranian Lebanese diaspora to spread operations at least in an intelligence gathering capacity to large parts of Africa, South America and parts of the United States. So it would even be, it would even be if I was the IRGT, if I was the Iranian regime, they're the proxy for, that is a proxy for potentially global reach. Now, Hezbollah is not what it used to be. It's been badly depleted, um, both in terms of senior leadership and popular support by its involvement in Syria. But the good news is involved in Syria, it's also that the war is over. Like, Hezbollah is grasping really thin pretexts to keep the war with Israel going, because they basically won. Yeah. I would, I would, yeah, I'd say that was true, but almost certainly the, the first reaction to American airstrikes would be, would be, um, Hezbollah rocket fire, or Northern Israel, 
And that's that's what actually gives that's what actually gives me some hope because Benjamin Netanyahu really wants the Americans to bomb around. The Israeli state does not. Well, the interesting the Israeli state was really unhappy with the end of the Iran nuclear deal. Yeah, juggling so. Um, anyway, we'll see what happens. Until then, I've been recording. He's going to be got to do made up. He's 100 been, episodes, baby. It's been 100 episodes, and not a single protester has been taken by the scruff of the neck. Talk to you again. In a while. In a while. Uh, this is uh, Will Cooling, and I'm walking to the train station after having left Luke a while ago. A few issues with my cart, but we are, I'm doing this as a little bit of an addition because, well, the break Jeremy Hunt needed to make this a real race may have happened quicker than we all thought because as looking for me by a quick phone call the guardians reported that uh, last fr- last friday police were called to J- boris johnson's hat of uh, well they'll call to i suppose carrie simmons i think her name carrie simmons is flat due to a loud argument between her and Boris Johnson and one of her neighbours being concerned for her safety. You look at the Guardian article, it's actually pretty damning. It shows that this wasn't just a, no, nosy neighbour, that they had heard it for a prolonged period of time, that they had trying to intervene directly and make sure they're okay before calling the police and that they have audio recording. Um, very interesting. Partly, it's due to uh, it's due to uh, it being Friday evening and people are out. It certainly feels like to me a lot of journalists are seeing a what and giving us a wide berth until more information is there and that's advisable. But unless Johnson can nip this in the bud, the predictions of my, myself and Luke that Johnson, whatever you think about Johnson, you can rely on him to ruin it for himself. And that for me, his private life would be his Achilles heel are both proven true. So yes, it's uh, obviously a grim situation. Obviously we hope everybody old is okay and safe. Um, always a temptation to get too into the political games, gamesmanship, but these are people. But yes, um, the kind of one-sided contest we were predicting does not seem to be in the offing. But for the reasons that we did say were Johnson's Achilles here. So yes, I've been all calling. That's just a little bit of context at the end. And we live in interesting times. Talk to you in a while. Bye.